Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Sophie B. Hawkins performs live at the Tally Ho Theater in Leesburg, Virginia, tomorrow night. We spoke about Hawkins' biggest hits from Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover to As I Lay Me Down. Hi, this is Sophie. Hey, Sophie B. Hawkins. What's nice about playing sort of these, you know, intimate rooms like that, getting being close to the audience? It's got to be a, a cooler vibe. It's a much cooler vibe and everything's nice about it. You know, my fans, I get to be really in touch with them. I'm probably going to do this solo acoustic, which I really love because it's a really dynamic show and I can explore a lot with the audience. You know, I, I frequently end up doing duets with the audience. It's really nice. It's all good, but this is a special event. You're right. And I haven't been to Virginia in a long time. Well, welcome back. When you say duets with the audience, what do you mean? A lot of passing the mic back and forth? Or what do you mean by that? Well, they're going to see. People get very involved in the music. I bring, you know, I bring people into certain aspects of the show and it's exciting and it's fun. Great. Now, um, where does where does this tour fall for you pandemic wise? Like, you know, I, you know, I guess I guess just kind of want to know what you've been up to for the last 18 months. It's been crazy for all of us. But, you know, when what, what did you do while you were sidelined and when did you get back out there? Well, I started getting back out there last February when I played some uh, shows in Connecticut. And I guess, you know, I did have to cancel some tours because of COVID recently, which was very upsetting. I hadn't been to the Midwest in a long time. And then everybody got COVID around the, I don't even want to say it's not nice, but so, so this will represent me really celebrating that. And that's why I'm going alone too, because, you know, you don't know who around you is going to get COVID and you can't just, you know, you can't just take that chance. So I have been, I've been working really hard on the musical and I have, it's going into production, which is great. I've been working on a book that I had started um, before COVID and then I got more time to commit to it. But, you know, and then of course, writing and recording songs. And the interesting thing is I have two kids and so COVID wasn't exactly a time of a lot of time. It was a time of less time than I've ever had in my life because I had, you know, as everyone says, I had my workload and then all the expectations of suddenly now performing on Zoom every week and just like crazy shifts in how we're supposed to be as artists, you know, completely letting people into our lives. And, but wanting to do that because we were all in COVID together, but then also my children, their whole lives were thrust upon me as well their education and everything it was really a different reality and now it's just starting to ease up a little bit it's just starting to get a tiny bit back to normal well that's good that it's starting to get a little back to normal but did i did yeah. i hear you correct did you did i hear you correct that you said you're working on a musical that's going to go in production 
Yeah, well, starting now, yeah, the musical is, is, is um, a musical I wrote. I started it a while ago, and I've been working on it steadily, but as musicals go, it takes, you know, it sort of goes through different stages, and so I'm excited about this stage. Yeah. And I'm in Are a you allowed to share that, what yeah. it's called or what it's about no, yet? No, I don't think early? I should. I think it's too early. I definitely think it's too early, but you know, it is good. And there's all original songs, of course, that I've written in the whole book. I've written the book, everything. So, and not to say me, 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 but just to say that it's a tremendous amount of work and I'm really, really happy. It's starting to get out there now and reading and all that jazz. Great, great. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the for the musical for sure. Um, well, whenever I have someone you know famous like yourself on here, I always like to see you know hear about the journey. So you know you you were born in in New York City. Uh, how did you get bit by the music bug? You know, like what sort of music was playing around the house? Maybe your parents were playing, or you know, when did you get your first music lessons? You know, I want to hear the sort of the the where the seed was planted. <laughs> That's actually a great question. And I wonder about because again, now I'm a mother and I've been trying to get the seed planted inside my children. I'm not sure the seed can get planted. I wonder if it's something people are born with because in my house, nobody was a musician. Nobody in our extended family was a musician except my grandmother did play piano, but she didn't when I knew her. And um uh, the, my mother loved classical music. My father loved jazz. So they did play records a lot. I mean, there's always been, you know, there's always a normal and natural love of music, but no one was playing it. No one was giving anybody lessons and no one was doing that kind of thing. And I lived in Manhattan, New York City, and there's always, there's always a lot of music around. There was just a moment when I said at 14 years old, I have to play African drums. And my aunt Linda acknowledged that I told her and she said oh I know an African drum teacher and it started from there I had wanted to play drums my whole life and I don't know where that came from but in all the childhood pictures I'm dressed up as an Indian drummer or something like that always holding a drum never getting lessons and then like I said when I was 14 I just nailed it African drums found my African drum teacher and then I quit everything and just did that Wow. All right. So there you are at 14 doing the African drums. When do you start, you know, taking it seriously, I guess, like as a young adult, you know, like when, when are you first starting to do like professional paid gigs? Is it around Manhattan? Yeah, definitely. Cause um, well, so then 14, I was, because I had never been able to get to having lessons when I started at 14, I was like a truck. I was not going to stop. I was very serious. And then I got the focus of going to Manhattan School of Music as a music college. And then um, surprisingly, I got in. And I say surprisingly, because in my mind then, I started late to be a classical musician. But I just practiced my butt off. And then I got into that school. And so I was already then, you know, sure, absolutely sure that I wanted to be a musician. And my first gigs as a drummer, I think, were when I was 16, you know, playing in bands that my African drum teacher got me in as a drummer and but I I steadily worked steadily worked as a drummer and then you know I got I got uh, I worked for a Bynum Ferry as a percussionist for a while but then I got fired and then after you got <laughs> fired what happened what do you do now after you get fired <laughs> and then I wrote damn I wish I was your lover and that's not even a joke <laughs> <laughs> nice um cool well so fill the gap then for us. How, how do you how do you get from that point to getting your debut album? You know, Tongues and Tails came in 92. We all remember that. But like, you know, how, right. how did that first record deal come about? Well, the 
first right well i've been trying to get a record deal for years and years and years actually you know what's funny is i'm writing a book about this now called come inside my jungle book it's really interesting i have all the journals from when i was 15 years old so as you ask me questions i can actually answer honestly because i'm studying my journals to make sure that my memory is correct about what happened so anyway somewhere in manhattan school of music around the third year I decided I, I was going to be a songwriter and and I didn't really want to be a classical percussionist. And so I started to do that. And then for years, I was working in different jobs that I loved, like working as a waitress or a co-check and writing songs, writing songs, going to acting class, still being a drummer, still you know auditioning for bands, being a drummer, singing from the drums, just doing all of it. And then at some point, Mark Cohn, walking in Memphis, Mark Cohn, came into the restaurant. I was coat checking. And he said, you have a beautiful speaking voice. I bet you're a singer. And I said, I'm a lousy singer, but I have all these songs. And I handed him my demo tape. And then Mark Cohn left it on a desk at a jingle studio because at that time he was a jingle singer. And some guy picked it up named Ralph Shuckett and he listened to my tapes on his way home to Brooklyn. And then he called me and he said, you should be making records. And that was, you know, the first real professional person who believed what I believed. And I'd been trying, as I said, for for years and years. So, So then when Ralph helped me clean up my demos and the whole first album, you know, was on those cassette tapes and and then seven record labels wanted to sign me. But seven record labels wanted to sign me. But before that, none did. None for years. So I want to say that I was it was great to have seven wanting to sign me and all the heads of the labels recording me but it was I also went through the years of having absolutely nothing but rejections oh yeah there's no such thing as overnight success there's been a million rejections right Um, right right yeah what do they say like the 20 year overnight success (laughs) um yes yes well so you mentioned all the songs on that first album tongues and tails were um were on those demos so tell me about the creation of the big hit single then, the breakthrough one, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. I mean, that thing was massive, went you know, yeah. pretty darn near the top of the charts when it came out in 92. Um, yeah. what, what was that written about? Was, it, was there an actual person in mind or, you know, <laughs> taken to the creation of writing that? Well, the, I wrote the song, you know, um, definitely way before the record, the record labels signed me. In fact, I heard that song is massive before other people did. I heard it, it was on my demos. People still were rejecting my demo tapes and, re- and, and not, you know, not wanting to give me a deal, even with that song. So finally, when it was heard, and I think it was timing, because you know, the song sort of found its time, in 90s when the record labels go, wait, this is really a great big song. And you know, I wrote that, I recorded it in my little home studio and it sounded big to me then. And then when people started to work on it in the studio, the musicians, it, it just got bigger. It just got more and more clear that that was going to be the single. And Sony was very excited and they put an awful lot of, you know, attention and promotion into it. And that was all manpower back then. You know, it was like radio stations were all like totally real people and everything was analog and people were calling in saying they loved the song. So it was it was really exciting because it was a very emotional and, and people-driven um, success, as all successes back then in music really were. That's really cool that you heard it in your own mind as, as a huge hit before anyone oh, yeah. else. See, you, you know what, what the good stuff is. <laughs> it's, well, you know, it's funny because, and I say with As I Lay Me Down, 
but and also nobody heard that for years but then but by then I was used to that but then you want to know something since then I've heard songs that I've written as big and it hasn't been the time you know or whatever so I don't know I don't know if there's a formula to it for sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, Damn It Wish It Was Your Lover definitely was big. You predicted that. And the the album came out and was big. And and I think you got nominated for, for the Grammy for Best New Artist that year in 93. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Memories from that experience, that must have been like a whirlwind. Um, not only getting sitting there, did you think there was a chance your name would get called? And then were you disappointed when they said, take me to another place for the <laughs> rest of development yes. one instead, right? <laughs> yes, they did win. They did win. I have a really uh, intense story about that, but I think I should save it for the book because then or else, because it's really, it's the, it's, it's, it's so not what you expect. And it was, it was a time, 93 was a time of, a, of incredible turmoil because, you know, Sony thought that I was really successful, but not successful enough. So they were wanting me to move to Europe and everything, but the Grammy board were incredible and they painted a beautiful picture of me and it was amazing. But there was a lot of uh, juxtaposing forces in my life at that time. Too bad. Right. I think you should share part of the intense story so people run out and buy the book. <laughs> well, but, it, but it's so not ready yet. Like I'm only in the, I'm still, I'm still in my third year of music school. I haven't even gotten up to that yet. Right, right. Okay, well, we'll, we'll earmark that and come back when we when the book comes out. But I mean, still, still yeah, a big, I mean, still a big honor to to be nominated for that for sure. Though. Oh, it's amazing! It's an amazing honor. The whole thing is an honor. I'm, I, I always, I have to say, and anybody who knows me will validate this. I feel so lucky and so blessed all the time, no matter what is happening. That's because I do feel that uh, even like, uh, I don't want to get philosophical, but. No, go my for perspective, it. my perspective is that my perspective and my attitude is that everything that happens to me happens for um, a good reason for me to grow and become better at whatever I'm trying to do or try to be, you know, a better mother, a better songwriter, a better painter, a better person. So, yes, I am incredibly lucky and I have been acknowledged and that is lucky. Some people never get acknowledged. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. No, this is the perfect forum to get philosophical. I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I do want to, I do want to, um, you mentioned as I lay me down before we move to more philosophical stuff, <laughs> I do want to hear uh, just sort of the, the creation of that because you know that when you have a, a huge first album like that, you know, a lot of, you said you know, a lot of, you know, Damn It Wish I Was Your Lover and all that was on your demos. But then for the second album, Whaler, um, you know, a lot of people feel pressure about doing a sophomore album, sophomore slump, blah, blah, blah. But you did it. You you turned around and with another hit record and uh, take me into you know as I lay me down and and how do you come up with the what is it in the background that like shoo bop bop what is it ula kako ula is that what it is yeah is that no, the African I, drum I, I, stuff coming back in yes yes oh well that stuff never leaves and that by the way at the tally ho I do do uh, some African drum stuff and that's part of what I do with the audience but. Um, let me think. Ola, well, so damn, uh, as I knew me down, the second album, interestingly enough, so I, I told you Sony said you should move to Europe. They really get you. America doesn't get you, which, by the way, I don't think is true at all. But I said, sure, I'll, you know, the experience of moving to Europe was exciting. So I moved to London and I worked with Steve Lipson, who had done Annie Lennox's solo album, which I thought was phenomenal. So there I am with Hef Mores and Steve Lipson in their studio called The Aquarium in London. And I was living in Hampstead, 
and you know friends with George Michael it was really an amazing time and again I didn't take it for granted I knew that I, I was living an amazing life and the songs were already written so in a way um, that's what I do by the way I do do a tremendous amount of work you know beforehand always I always feel like I have you know stores and stores of songs and writings and whatever so when it gets down to the recording or the producing of something I feel very prepared so that was a good experience and as I lay me down again nobody heard it and I was thinking how can they not hear this this is so clearly my biggest hit and actually, it is bigger than Dan, believe it or not. No, so I think then, so, yeah. Yeah. And so then there was a point where Steve Lipson said, you know, this song is really growing on me. And I was kind of relieved. And again, guess what? Those are my home demos. So all the records are uh, layers on top of my home demos. So that the keyboard, the Juno 60, the 808 drum machine, it, even the background vocals, that's all from my apartment in New York. And I shipped my whole studio, which wasn't that big, to London. And we brought my studio into their studio. It was really a really cool time. It was intimate. It was warm. It was natural. It was real. I loved it. I mean, I loved it. My God, going to Paris on the weekends. I, I did. It was unreal. Who gets to live like that? Right, exactly. Well, it's nice <laughs> that you sort of view it like that. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's everything is sort of like, you know, a blessing that you're lucky to do. Um, well, cool. Well, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure every time you do interviews, people want to talk about those two songs, right? Damn it, Wish I Was Your Lover and As I Let Me Down. Well, those are the ones burnt into our brain. But are, is there a song or two that, you know, from your other work after that, that you feel like that you wish people asked you about more? Like that was, you're like, damn, that was some of my best stuff and no one asked me about it. Here, Here's your chance. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet of you. Well, no, I don't ever get sick of Demo Wish I Was Your Lover as I lay me down because again, when they came out of me, I said, oh my God, I am, again, I'm so blessed. This is like a baby coming out. This is a big, beautiful baby. This will carry me. And those two songs are why you're talking to me. Those two songs still are the biggest amount of support that I have. And they open many doors still. There's in so many movies. Um, no, I'm very grateful. I never get sick of talking. And by the way, musically, those songs are still interesting to me. They're not easy to sing at all. They're not easy to play. They're actually it's still exciting to me. So that's good. And then let me see. what. So You know what happens to me is that people, well, even my very good friends will call me up and say, I just heard your album. The Crossing. Oh my God. And I never heard that song, The Land, the Sea, and the Sky. I love that song. I love it. I don't know why I've never listened to it. And then, so the answer to your question is I feel that I'm the sort of artist that my music will be discovered sort of for many years to come in its own quiet way. People discover it and then they get really into it. And I do that with other artists too. So I appreciate it. Like when I discovered Bobby Gentry, for instance, and then I listened to everything Barbie Gentry ever did. And, you know, she was long gone out of the business, but I felt like it was a whole rebirth for me discovering. So people do discover me. And I would just say that um, every song is as important to me and every song, sometimes my friends will text me, that your song, you, you, the, what is that song? Your tongue like the sun in my mouth. And then I'll text back, I'll start texting the lyrics to them. And they go, oh my God, I'm so happy you like your own songs. And I, and I write back, I love my own songs. I'm so glad somebody is hearing them. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, it, it proves that they do go, they live on, even, even if yes. you don't 
you know, even if they weren't hits at the time or whatever, like you'll have people coming up to you saying, wow, I just heard that. And I need, now I need to go back and do a deeper dive on the other stuff I might have missed. Yes. Yes. Deeper dive. That's what we do. That's what I do when I love a director or a songwriter, you, you know, it's true. You get in by one thing and then it's this never ending kind of love affair with that artist for the time. And you get so much out of it. I'm glad I'm one of those people that some people do that with. For sure. Well, how how rewarding was it um, that you got to start your own label, Trumpet Swan Productions, for a lot of these later albums? And you were with Sony, right? But um, yeah. you know, wh- why did you why did you think it was necessary to spin off? And you know, has that has that allowed oh. you your, your own freedom? That was a, that's a really true specific story because Timber, the third album with Sony, I wrote the quote unquote hit for that album. Lose Your Way, which was in Dawson's Creek, and it was also in the movie Bounce, and it still plays like a lot. So Lose Your Way was written on a banjo. And I so it was a big fight with Sony because they said, this is your big hit for now, and you have to take off the banjo. And I said, well, keep the banjo because it's part of the sound, and it's so great that I can get on a TV show like and play the banjo and sing the song. It will be unique and memorable. And they were adamant that the banjo had to come out. And I was adamant that the banjo had to stay on because the business was changing so much. We're like talking about 1998 when all these singers are having to write with droves or what they called, you know, camps of other songwriters. And it was, it was like the death of the singer songwriter was the, was the late nineties. And so I said, no, I, I wrote this song on the banjo. I'm keeping the banjo and you guys have to find a way to make it work because or else all of us artists will, you know, cave in for, for no good reason. And then we'll have no art left. And, and I did, I was a little bit, um, what should we call it? I was a little bit diplomatic I did say try some mixes without the banjo but they didn't work and I was honest and I got other people's opinions and everybody and even billboard wrote articles like they they would write we love the banjo so it wasn't just me it wasn't an egotistical thing and I also said the banjo is the only instrument invented in America it was invented by slaves and it represents freedom so I think that this is my freedom and so basically Sony said you know what take a walk and I said I'll take a walk but I want my masters and they said okay so basically I had to call a big lawyer that eats people and they gave me my master's back and I got to release that album. So it wasn't like, it was like a happy big moment for me where I got what I wanted, which was to release a record on my own terms and on my own label. And I didn't want to leave Sony, but I had to, you know, it was like a relationship, a divorce where they, you just realize you're going two different directions. Right, right. Well, you know, it's it's worked out for you. You've you've released several on, on under um Trumpet Swan. So congrats yeah, on more that. Coming out. More is coming out because it looks like, you know, this is a time where I feel sort of like a surge under my feet. I think it seems like this I've had a lot of music that I've been wanting to release. My fans know this for years, and I haven't been able to find a really good way to release it and actually make a living. It seems to be changing now. The tide is changing. Maybe for many people, maybe it's the end of COVID. I don't know, but I'm going to be releasing music and I'm really excited. By the way, Tongues and Tales 30th anniversary is 2022. So as I'm releasing a box set for that, I'm going to get to be releasing new music as well because there'll be all sorts of motion, you know, in the into the world. Pivoting just one second before we run, I want to hear about, you know, I remember that you, you start as Janis Joplin. You got to do some acting chops yeah. in Room 105, the highs and lows of Janis yeah. Joplin. Um, just yes. how did that come together? And how much of a joy was that? I'm sure she was one of your idols. 
she was one of my idols. And, and when I was a drummer, I wanted to be in Brig Brother in the holding company as a drummer. And I never, ever thought for one second I could ever sing Janis Joplin. And when the writer said, you're going to play Janis Joplin, I said, there's no way I cannot sing like Janis Joplin ever. And, and so I did, I did figure out how to do it. It was really fun preparing for the role. I mean, it was death defined. Playing Janis Joplin is death divine. And the story was really, you know, it was a big thing to be able to do, to have to do. Because the version that I did, Room 105, was brilliantly written. And it has a lot of the emotional depths of Janis with her mother, with the night of when she took her life. It's all... It's not a puff piece. It's trying to be as real as possible. Oh my God, it practically killed me. I have to tell you, because it was like, I, I prepared for it so hard and I wrote songs as Janis Joplin. I really did everything that I knew how to do to be Janis Joplin. And then on stage every night, like I would pray that she would come to me. I would pray that, and I wouldn't go on stage till I felt her hands on my back. And I'm telling you, when people saw who were her friends saw me playing Janis Joplin, they said, she has really come through you. You are definitely her. And they would give me her jewelry. They would give me her clothes. Her friends came from all over, you know, San Francisco. And they just were so moved that they felt I was bringing her back. It was, it was very intense. Wow. Yeah, that must have been both a thrill and exhausting to be what what's the right word? The conduit for her. Yeah, the conduit. That's exactly and that's all you know, that's all I wanted to be. You're right, because I love her so much. I just wanted to channel her into people's hearts. And you know, when the show closed, oh God, I I now you know the great news is is that I got to learn what real actors, at least a little bit what real actors go through when they really put themselves into a role and then it ends and there's sort of a death. It's really intense. I, I'm gonna tell you that I think that acting is the hardest thing in the world. And when they say it's a noble profession, they're right because it is, it is death defying to be an actor and to stay an actor and to live as an actor and go through all that. I mean, it's almost, the other hardest thing is dancing. I think what dancers go through, but at least dancing, you get to dance in your own room. Acting, you actually need a stage and other people. Right. And that's such oh. a great point you mentioned. Like that moment, it is almost like a grieving of a death. You have to let that spirit of Janis Joplin out of you and, and go. Or like a, uh, like, a, like a Denzel letting Malcolm X spirit leave him after that. And that just must be a transformational yeah. you know, thing. So, wow. Um, well, at least you got to play yourself on Community, that TV show. <laughs> That was so fun. Yeah, and you're right. And there's the other side. That's the balance there, because that was just nothing but fun. Yeah, absolutely. And didn't when, didn't they call it the Sophie B. Hawkins dance, like a Sadie Hawkins dance? Yes, 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 they did. That was such a compliment. And again, that was the writers. The writers said, "Hey, can you do this?" And I was like, "Are you kidding? Of course I can do this." Wow. Yeah. Well, you see, you've gotten to do a lot at all TV, stage, music, and you know, you're working on your own musical now. So that's fantastic. Um, and then pl why don't you plug the book really quick? You mentioned it earlier. What's it called and when can we expect it? Well, the working title I'm working with is called Come Inside Your Jungle, Come Inside My Jungle Book. It's the line from Dan, I wish I was your lover. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when it's going to come out. I'm, I'm working on it. I don't know at all, but just, just to say that I'm discovering more depth than I ever thought, because like I said, I found my journals. I knew I had them. I didn't look for them too hard, but I unearthed them. At first I was like, I'm not going to read my journals. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to be too much. And then I said, 
you have to do that, Sophie. You can't not, you can't not do that. And that's been the hardest work of it is actually reading them and sitting with them and, uh, you know, writing what's it really there is not easy. You know, it's much more fun to work just from memory, but I can't do that because I have the actual, I have the actual journals. So I have to stick to it, but it's very interesting. It's, it's, this is hard. It's harder than the musical. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, it's, glad, mm -hmm. it's good you have that all written down for posterity. And I'm sure, you know, the, your kids and everything are, will enjoy that reading oh, through those see, one day. Well, let's end on that note because you, you, re you referred to, you know, you know, your songs as, as, you know, like birthing babies on into the world. So how, you know, how much is being a parent to, to two kids, um, you know, affected your life and, and changed you? Well, it's changed me, I think, ultimately, because because they're, you know, they're people and I'm just a person trying to do the best I can to protect them and raise them. And I, are you a father? Uh, I am uh, a father of a proud dog at the moment. Hopefully oh, more eventually. <laughs> well, dogs are easier. All dogs are nothing but love. But right. anyways, it's changed me profoundly. And it's, but again, I would say it's affected my, well, some of the new songs and some of the songs in the musical are on a different level. So it's taken me out of myself. And that's the goal. I think when you're a parent is to get out of yourself and to be a person who is, well, what the word is a facilitator for their life to take off. And humans were not naturally built for that. We're very controlling and we're very fearful. So this challenges every bit of, of my essence of being it, it it's made me a much a much better person a much more uh, anyway you'll hear it in the music actually i think my best song ever written is well one of the best songs ever written is coming out when i can get out this album and um it's about my kids being born in fact i wrote it when i was nursing my daughter right like literally at the same time i have videos of me nursing and writing a song and that's what i mean Wow. Well, we can't wait for, for that song. Uh, stay tuned for the new album for supposedly yeah. maybe one of the best songs you've ever written. That's going to be great. That's a teaser. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you know, while we wait for that album and we wait for the book and we wait for the musical and everything, uh, in the meantime, head out to the Tally Ho Theater in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, short, drive, short drive from D.C. on Friday, November 5th. Sophie B. Hawkins, thanks so much for joining us. This was a blast. It was great. Thank you so much for your questions. Of course. All right. Be well. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.